So everybody, we are here with the final interview for post-season one of Fire in the Dark, and I am joined by the GM mastermind themselves, Jamie Wolf. Hello, everybody. So, Jamie, I know who you are, but for our audience, who are you, where can we find you, and what do you do? Hi, I'm Jamie Wolf. I'm an artist and a variety streamer. You can find me on Twitch as twitch.tv slash Jamie Wolf. Jamie spelled with two I's and uh, Wolf spelled with an E at the end. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter as Jamie Wolf Art, where you can find me doing various posts and occasionally actually throwing my art up there when I feel competent enough to put it in the public eye. Uh, beyond that, I am the GM for Fire in the Dark, obviously. That's why I'm here. And I'm a uh, mod across Twitch and you can find me in a variety of TTRPG spaces. Mm -hmm. And all of those links and things will be in our show notes. Um, and along with that, Jamie's my internet twin, so I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that I get to interview, torture, I mean interview Jamie for uh, two <laughs> hours. Or however long this is. However long um, this is. Brandon and I can just talk anyway, so it's like, yeah, it depends how um, it goes. So, so starting off, uh, let's talk about Blades in the Dark. Because sure. you and I uh, had the benefit of already knowing this game before this show started. Um, where did you first hear about it and what got you into Blades in the Dark? So, as you're probably aware, uh, you specifically, Brandon, but for yeah. everyone else, Brandon and I played in a game of Blades in the Dark, and that was my first game of Blades in the Dark. I have a rule about running games, even as a forever GM, I prefer to like to play in them before I run them. It gives me a better rundown of the mechanics and things like that. So when it comes to Blades in the Dark, prior to running it for Fire in the Dark on the show, I have only played the game in one campaign kind of a thing. You could call it a campaign. What we did was honestly more akin to a series of single off adventures that eventually culminated in its own thing. Uh, it was friends getting together on a Monday night and just playing a game, having a few drinks and enjoying being scoundrels in a dark fantasy city. Uh, so that was me. I got introduced to it by Commander Poltsar, who runs Denari's Half Dozen on mm -hmm. uh, here on Huntsman's Hydra. But beyond that, uh, yeah, that was kind of my own experience. And it was with Brandon. Brandon and I kind of jumped into it at the same time together. And I never looked back. It's still one of my favorite systems. It will continue to be one of my favorite systems. I absolutely enjoy it uh, from the lore to the system itself. Uh, I think that the, the D6 system that it runs on is pretty neat. And I like the way that it works. I like the narrative kind of flow of it and how it works as opposed to like more of a hardcore strategic battle system, tactical combat like D&D &D or uh, Warhammer kind of is. Uh, whereas this is, it's a storytelling game. And D&D &D is, Blades in the Dark is a storytelling game that you can occasionally do combat adjacent things in. D&D &D is a combat game that you tack story onto. That's not a yeah. bad thing. You can build phenomenal stories in D&D, &D, but D&D &D is a combat game first. And Blades in the Dark and any of the Forged in the Dark systems really are a story driven narrative driven focus mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. And it was also funny. I was talking with Rue uh, during their interview, and they actually learned Blades because their D&D GM said they wanted to do a heist. So it was so much easier to just run it in Blades rather than Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, we both got into Blades at the same time. And then uh, back in December, you came to me with the pitch for fire in the dark yeah it was the end of 2021 kind of yep. thing it was back when huntsman's hydra had just was starting to get started um mm. there had been a couple other shows that had done a couple of short runs on huntsman's hydra at that point but yep i kind of came in and I was like hey i had an idea mm-hmm. i don't know if there's anything to this but i had an idea and so I'm going to skip over the how dare you. As much as I love this question, um, also all of these questions are from our players that I told them when we were interviewing Jamie and they just sent me their list. So, so like what? the answer how dare you though, it was yeah. very easily. Y'all didn't see any of that shit coming. No, they really didn't. They really didn't. They really didn't. But uh, pulling back to when you first sent me this pitch, what motivated you to do this story on a stream so why did i want to stream this game yeah for those of you who don't know this is my first streamed game not i have done live stream one shots for charity almost exclusively before this um Mm -hmm. i started doing those back in the end of 2020 basically uh started Mm -hmm. doing some charity one-off things for like over on D&D Jordan Lee's channel or Nix's channel and like just, you know, testing the waters. What motivated me to do this story on this stream was this really was the test where I was like, can I tell a limited frame story in a Mm -hmm. limited format in front of a live audience? Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. Can I keep the beats of making it still feel like a good game, like mm-hmm. I'm telling a good game and telling a good story while limiting myself to the, let's call it the nuances of a streamed game of an actual play. Because yeah. in the grand scheme of things, when you're doing an actual play, the point is to have a fun game and to have a good time with your players and stuff. But it is also to tell a story in a concise fashion. Yep. How concise that is can be dependent on the story you're trying to tell. You can get things like Critical Role that can go for a hundred plus episodes telling this long-winded epic campaign that builds on these like grand adventures and scenarios. Or you can do something like Fire in the Dark. It's a bite-sized snapshot of a larger world. And I thought that that was kind of the best place to start. Was that because the reason I wanted to do this on a stream was because I only had like so much story I wanted to tell here. I didn't have like like in sometimes when I run D and I have a basic story and then I run off of that and I just keep going and going and going until like I find a nice place to end it and the mm-hmm. campaign. But with this, it was like I had the story I wanted to tell, and I wanted to tell it. Yep. And it seemed like Huntsman's Hydra and Stream seemed like a good place to do that while also branching out a little bit from my own personal comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, specifically talking about Fire in the Dark, what made you want to focus on a story around 
drugs and like where did that idea for pyro come from okay that is a little interesting the reason i wanted to focus on a story around drugs wasn't about drugs specifically is the thing mm -hmm. um it, it it doesn't really have to do with drugs as a whole uh personally i'm not a fan i i'm an advocate for uh legalization and rehabilitation of mm -hmm. most drugs uh and things of like that but when it comes to that the drugs isn't the point of the story the point of the story and the reason that and the way that the drug focused is the drug represents something it represents in this case quite literally like there's not even a lot of nuance here power mm -hmm. it is just power by another name power by another form um so the story I wanted to tell here was about power. There's a story about what people will do to grasp power and how power is redistributed and where mm -hmm. power really rests. And then you can do that through a very physical medium of something like a drug like pyro. Mm -hmm. uh, now, where the idea of pyro itself came from, that is kind of a mix of ideas that came mm -hmm. Uh, if you can't tell by the fact that Pyro's original name is Formula 451, part of it does stem from the book Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit. Yep. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 is a classic dystopian novel. I highly recommend it to anyone who uh, is interested in that kind of genre. If you are a fan of things like Brave New World or uh, 1984, Fahrenheit 451 is a fantastic book looking at the narrative of censorship and when something goes too far. Yep. Now, for the idea for Pyro specifically, though, is a little bit of Fahrenheit 451, but the vast majority of the idea of these criminalized fire users came from one of my absolute favorite pieces of media, Promare. Promare mm -hmm. is a... Uh, Premiere is an anime movie. It's it's not like uh, it's not a series. It's not. It is a movie that is an hour and forty five minutes long. It tells the whole story that it's trying to tell in that hour and forty five minutes, and it's very good. And I mm -hmm. very much enjoy it from from an artist perspective, from color theory and and visuals and all that. It's it's a beautiful piece of work. But from a storytelling perspective, the way that it does it and the way that methods of power are criminalized in order to control people and to further someone else's agenda and how that the moral nuance versus the, the law versus morality and that kind of idea and the idea of that like just because something illegal is illegal doesn't mean it's amoral and just because something is legal doesn't mean it is moral and that kind of idea so that was kind of a lot of the inspiration for pyro itself and then for the mm -hmm. like actual idea of the uh glowing vial and the way that it comes that stems from a different favorite movie of mine um mm -hmm. oh uh repo the genetic opera yes that's it yes. i was like i was trying to remember because there's there's you got to remember there's repo the genetic opera and there's repo man repo that's man right. is a horror yeah. film repo the genetic opera is a campy gothic comedy uh mm -hmm. repo the genetic opera that was the inspiration for the actual drug itself and the idea of the drug. So if you take all of these elements together where you've got social structures and powerful hierarchies and mix that with drugs and fire, you get pyro. 
And that's nope. kind of where all of my influences came from to stem at this point, because as you can guess, I pitched this to Brandon in December, end of November, December, right yep. on the back of October. I literally just rewatched Repo the Genetic Opera. I had just yep. seen Promare for the first time, and I had actually just reread Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451 a few months earlier. And consciously and subconsciously, it all just kind of amalgamated into this. In, into this lovely story that we've gotten to experience over eight episodes. Indeed. Um, stepping back a little bit, and this kind of... I I have seen you GM Fire in the Dark, and I also had the pleasure of being in a home game with you, um, plus Microscope and yep. everything else that we do. What has influenced your style of storytelling? What has influenced my style of storytelling? Um, that's a great question, actually, because I, it's really no one thing mm-hmm. at this at this juncture of the road, as you can guess. Um, yeah. So trying to say it in a concise manner is very difficult. But uh, here are kind of the highlights. Uh, I grew up from a very young age reading fantasy stories. Mm-hmm. I, before I could even read, my one of my grandmothers would read me these classic encyclopedias of fantasy that she had of just these, in, in, they were basically just fantasy encyclopedias and mm-hmm. stories and the likes, and it really, like, something clicked in my brain with that, and then I just started reading fantasy stories, and it was my favorite, and when I hit around the age of 12, I was like, okay, well, I want to start trying to write my own stories and that kind of a thing, as usually when you're an avid reader, you sometimes are want to do. And I did. I started writing. Uh, I mm-hmm. wrote a variety of things that are absolute garbage to look back on, but it make me yep. laugh because it's like I see how much I've grown from them. Um, and I, I read them and I'm like, this is nonsense, but I see what I was going for. I can see how the ideas and like the skill building started there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, my style of storytelling kind of obviously evolved based on the media I consumed. However, I didn't start playing TTRPGs until I got to college. Um, mm-hmm. and in terms of verbal storytelling and, and kind of how that works in a TTRPG sense, uh, I played a little bit of TTRPG, uh, with, uh, some guys at my college. And then I basically like immediately started GMing uh, 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, like, yep, like almost immediately fell into the GM role um, and just kind of started going with that. And from there, the biggest influence on my style of storytelling was throwing things at the wall, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the influences from outside people that I learned for, from, uh, I mean, it's stereotypical to say this, but like, Matthew Mercer and Matthew Colville, I watched a yep. lot of their videos on GMing tips uh, from both ends, uh, and just that vi- they have two very different styles, and so I would pick and choose what I liked from theirs. Uh, I would watch actual plays, people like uh, Brennan Lee Mulligan, Abrea Iyengar, um, and from there, those would have a lot of influence on me. But the biggest influence on my style of storytelling to where I am now... Mm-hmm honestly probably comes from a place of media analysis looking at things and looking at what is the point of the story they're trying to tell so Mm -hmm. a lot of the time of when i read a book i I look at why 
what kind of story are they trying to tell and why are they trying to tell that story in this manner? Why is this the medium? And kind of hitting the key points of what are the genre. And one of the things that literally, like, one of the glass shattering things for me was I used to tell stories, like I've always liked telling dark fantasy style stories. You can mm -hmm. test that outside of Fire in the Dark, even my D&D games and the like, they tend to veer on the side of darker themes. Uh, literally, and I like, literally all of us are basically undead. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, well, that was your own doing. That's not on me. But I like to stray in the realm of dark things, dark fantasy, gothic fantasy, terror, dread, and that kind of thing. What shattered the glass for me, though, was um, a couple of years ago, I was running a game that is uh, still a game that I remember fondly, is a game that had impact on my personal homebrew D&D world, uh, and has had long-lasting consequences in that realm and field. But the people that were in their game, at one point, one of them, uh, one of my partners came up to me and had to like sit down and explain to me that we had been doing too much dark shit back to back to back to back without any kind of payoff, without any kind mm -hmm. of, of uh, joy. And it, it really, uh, and, uh, really kind of hit the narrative wall for me and realized, oh, the thing that makes a dark story a dark story is there has to be the light that reflects it. You can't, if everything's dark, then there are no shadows. There mm -hmm. is only darkness, and you nope. get lost in it. The thing that makes gothic fantasy, the thing that makes dark fantasy what it is, ultimately is hope. Whether the players have hope, whether the players are the hope, or whether the players can see something that is on the horizon that represents hope. There has mm -hmm. to be hope, no matter what dark story you're telling no matter what dark fantasy, no matter what evil twists you bring in to break your poor little player's hearts, there has to be hope on the other side of the horizon. You have to make the player's victories mean something. You have to make it so that even if it is as simple as a thank you from the small child that you managed to save from a horrendous monster, even if everything else is terrible, even if you are losing, even if the big bad has conquered your city, even if everyone is downtrodden, if in that moment you're able to show joy, you're able to show hope, you're able to have made a difference in the darkness, mm -hmm. that is what makes a dark fantasy and a gothic fantasy better and interesting from something that is just dark all the time. It is, mm -hmm. it is, it goes from, from being a, a dark fantasy, a, a, and all that to just, like, it, it's just, it's, it's, uh, what's, what's the word for it? Horror porn or, or, uh, yeah, um, um uh, you know, it's or, uh, hopelessness. Something along the, yeah, hopelessness. Yeah, it's, um, other hopelessness. Um, yeah. You just, just it, it, it has no point at that point. The reason is there has to be a light in the darkness. There has to be that flicker of a candle to represent. And that, that really was what ultimately was like turned my storytelling thing on a pivot at that point where I realized, oh, okay. And then really helped me like streamline and focus into the kinds of stories I wanted to tell and the kinds of things I wanted to represent.
The other aspect of this, and trust me, I can talk about storytelling all day, so I'll try to keep this brief. The other aspect of this is I am a big fan of character-driven stories. Mm -hmm. Your overarching plot can be as generic and predictable as you want. Generally, you try to be a little better than that, but you can have your general heist plot, something that could be ripped straight out of Ocean's Eleven and the like. But the characters, their motivations, their personal stories, and things like that, that, I think, is what is the driving juice in making a good, lasting impression, especially in a TTRPG setting. It's also important when you're, like, writing a book or telling those kinds of stories, but from a TTRPG sense, the players are here to play their character. Yep. When you start a game, they're already invested in your in, in their own character. They're not necessarily rep invested in the story you're trying to tell. So if you take that character and yep. you start tying it into your overarching story and you start making it a part of it, they are going to get so much more invested in the story you are telling, their own character, and everyone else's character if you work from a character-driven perspective. That's why when it comes to things like Fire in the Dark and my other games that I run, I start by making a general idea and then I get everyone's backstories and I start yep. building off of that and using their backstories to build the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. Which oh, yeah. is always excellent as someone who's experienced it and gotten to watch it. Thank um, you. Let's see. So before we dive into Fire in the Dark itself, let's go back to session zero. So let's switch things around a bit. Let's say you're not in the GMing seat. Okay. You, I, we'll, we'll say it's me in the seat. It doesn't really matter. Uh, you are a part of the Murmur Venture Project. What playbook do you play? Oh, that's a good question. So working you at least know the, what you at least know what everybody else is playing. Right. Working off the assumption that everyone else is playing the same thing that they are playing now. Yep. Uh, so we have a lurk as played mm -hmm. by Parker. We have the yep. Cutter, played by John. Yep. We have the Spider, played by uh, our wonderful uh, Ice Cold Brew. We have the yep. Whisper, played by Rue. Yep. In that event, so normally my favorite playbook is the Whisper. Don't get yep. me wrong. I love all of the playbooks, but I'm, I'm a sucker for a Whisper. I just like my spooky, creepy stuff. Uh, I love Dishonored. Brandon knows this. I, I'm a big yep. fan of the Dishonored series had a large impact on how I tell the story of Doskfall as a whole, not necessarily on Fire in the Dark, but on Doskfall. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, there's the Corvo mask in the, your background. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, I am a big fan of that kind of, like, creepy. However, I don't think that the gang would need two whispers. Don't get me wrong, you can, you can have a gang of entirely lurks or entirely cutters. Yeah. It's fully doable and every character would be different they would all be unique but i don't think that i would have needed to play a whisper given crow and yeah. the phenomenal things that rue did with silas mm -hmm. personally if that was the group they were going to play with i probably would have played a leech Ooh, yes I probably would have played a leech um leech for those who don't know being the tinker tailor kind of individual mm -hmm. And I would have specifically probably played a leech 
with a bending towards fleshcraft kind of a thing. Uh, Ooh, alchemy, yes, so like... stitching, uh, slight bend towards the arcane, something. So I would have uh, been kind of the group's doctor in a way. Yeah. But like in a very wild experimental scientist kind of, I'm going to see what this does and stick them yep. with a uh, formula. Um, granted, I am a little bit influenced on that based on what everyone else uh, is already playing and what yeah. I know about the story. I, I have a prediction, but being able to play a leech with an interest in formula and alchemy in a game and a focus where there is all of these characters, the overarching story has to do with a formula and the likes mm -hmm. of that just it would have been very interesting and I think would have added some narrative nuance. It's why I was kind of hoping that someone would play a leech uh, when it came to them making their characters. Don't get me wrong, I adore everyone's characters. I was yeah. a little disappointed when we didn't get a leech. No, 100%. And honestly, I really want to see you play that now um, at some point, just because as as the leech of our group, I like seeing how other people take that that tinker style character and what direction oh yeah with. and and it definitely would have been a little bit more of a flesh crafter style yeah. like this is the kind of character that when i picture them it'd be like by the end of the um end when you get start towards the end of season one it's like i've worked out how to uh graft different body parts onto myself like mm -hmm. maybe i've given myself some scales so I get an armor yeah. bonus at some point or i have uh, got an extra pair of arms that I keep hidden mm -hmm. for most of the time, but I use just for getting work done. Yeah. Things of that nature. I immediately also thought of the extra arms. Um, That's because and, we're very, you and I are very similar in that fashion of yeah. like wanting to do multiple things at once. Well, well, also that, and I'm thinking of the hunt who has four arms. The hunt does have four arms uh, when he's in his, actually when the hunt is in his fully powered form, he has six, but mm. and we got to mm. four good to know uh so now we can actually talk about the show all of these were just questions that i felt like fit our generic talk so starting off maybe something easy who was your favorite npc to get into mm. okay so this one is a little bit of a this one's a, a bit of a cheat in terms of that but it was archie and the reason yeah. for that is because I knew who Archie was and no one else did. And getting to be in that vein, in that perspective of, of being that master manipulator who is so in his role mm. that the role has become another person almost. It just, there is a lot of fun in that, in, in the like the GM enjoy of like, I'm going to fuck these people up so bad, especially with every moment of them getting more and more and more attached to Archie, like yeah. watching it happen. I was like, this is getting, you're making this so much worse for yourself than I ever could. Um, so Archie, however, setting aside Archie for the mm -hmm. unique bastard man that he was and is, yeah. uh, I would say that my other favorite character to actually get into character was it wasn't rick i'm sorry don't get me wrong i, I love no, rick. that's right you know love to come in and fuck some shit up it's what i do rick was great but it actually was jay uh the blue jay from the flock yes. um mm -hmm. i am a big fan of jay Jay is everything that I normally do in how I make my charismatic characters. 
shoved into one person where he's kind of an asshole, but supposed to be in a lovable kind of sense. He's supposed to be a can talk to anyone, get you anything to a degree. Um, he's he's supposed to be that kind of narrative focus of like, like the classic con man mm-hmm. who wants to be your best friend to your face, but is always working another angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Jay. Jay has so much. There, there's so much to Jay, and he's I... so fun to play. But he is bright, bright smile, and always a good time. I, I, I love that little bird. <laughs> yeah, Jay's a problem. Little bird bastard. Um, all right, let's see. And I. I've talked about this across like a couple of different of these interviews. I can't wait for season two to see more of the flock. And like Jay was one of my main picks for that. Cause lovable bastards and lovable bastard that he is. And like with most of your NPCs, um, save for the ones that you make purely to be disgusted and feel disgusted playing them. Um I love getting to see you like be in your element with someone like Jay. Where you're just like, this is my shit. I'm here, and y'all have to deal with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like also when Echo, oh, like when Echo, Echo shows up. Echo is a whole nother layer of bastard. Echo, yep. they have all their own problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Echo, for those of you who don't know, Echo was the character that I played in the uh, Blades in the Dark game that we talked about earlier. That Brandon and I that we first started in the damned. Yep. And that whole group is based off of the game, the group that we were. And I just mm-hmm. took them and put them in my Doskval as another faction. Because yep. why wouldn't I? I loved playing that game, and I would absolutely love to bring those characters back into the world as NPCs. Mm-hmm. Is the, thing. It's the same thing is going to ultimately happen for future games that I run in Doskval, is that the Murmur Venture Project, whether or not they continue to be called that, no matter what form they take, are probably going to also eventually be NPCs in my Doskval. So. Uh, Trust me, as someone who's already doing it, it's been pretty fun. So, you want to start broad or narrow? Let's start broad, work our way down. Okay, so, in that case, out of all... Not the finale. Um, mm-hmm. What was your favorite job of season one? Oof. The finale was fun, don't get me wrong. But I yeah. think my favorite job was probably infiltrating the Plague Doctors. Uh, okay. I That was personally a very fun, very favorite. I really liked the energy of that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it just went so well. Uh, Alternatively, I would also say episode two with the party. The party was just, mm. the party was great because it it really hit the highlights of what everyone's built to do. Everyone really got to see what their character could do in that. Mm-hmm. And from a GM perspective above things to see your players have fun and to see each of them kind of hit their specialty and, and own the room in some way or another, mm-hmm. that brings its own joy. From a story perspective and from what happened, the Plague Doctor heist, hands down, of just the, the ridiculous things that happened there from Tristero literally spending the entire heist in a hospital bed to the yeah. closet scene to, yep. to our, our beloved Crow 
ending up in a lab working on fucking uh, yeah. various poisons and medicines as a lab assistant and just being so over it and like, this is my day job. Why am I doing this now? Yep. Um, See, I, I do have notes for like each of the episodes and my one for episode four, which is the play doctor one is, so how did it feel only having two players for that whole episode? Honestly, you say that, but Tristera was a large part of it. In, oh, 100%. Uh, um, uh, unfortunately, Mort was not there because that was one of the episodes John had to take off. But yeah. so we were, we were down a cutter which honestly for the infiltration worked a little better. And then we put Justera yeah. in a hospital bed for the whole thing. So it really was the Crow and Crow Inspector show. It was the, the yeah. Silas and Asher special. Um, yep. And, you know, as someone who has run a Blades in the Dark game for one person, yeah, I there's just, there's something different about the number of people in any given job. That said, Silas and Asher could not have done what they did, but for Tristero's batshit plan uh yep. that was to put himself into a fucking hospital bed with a bad batch of murmur uh that whole thing um and actually that brings up a, a point rue brought up yesterday for me um talking about murmur real quick because uh, I know the party doesn't know the full extent of they know generically what it does, but like they can't make it. Um, right. It's, that was Archie's job. Yeah. He made it. Yeah. So like does Murmur have any long lasting effects on the body? Murmur was developed. So the effect that Murmur has where it does that yeah. kind of good good reverie, good, 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 bringing up a good memory, that kind of a thing, uh, to kind of give that boost, honestly was a side effect of its original intent. Um, mm. Murmur was created by Archie uh -huh. as a distillation to help him start working on perfecting Formula 451. It yep. is, at this point... Murmur currently serves as instead. So you remember how in the season at various points there were different liquids that were being used as the base for different versions of pyro. There was yeah. the saltwater base that made for the more unstable version, but more violent mm. one. Mm. There was the generic water base that made for the stable, normal version of pyro. Uh, there yeah. was a uh, there was a base. There was a version of it that they never interacted with because it never became relevant, but there was a version of it that worked, try, tried, I should say, tried to work with Leviathan's blood as the base, just pure Leviathan's blood as the base. Uh, okay. That one, uh, that one did not work well. Uh, it caused, they, this never became, they, they never had to do anything with this, uh, but that one mm. actually caused violent mutations. Um, oh. Hmm. Yeah. Violent mutations and almost always ended in some form of spontaneous combustion after one use um, was the thing. So that was, you know, a failure. Murmur was created to be a distillation to serve as the base for oh. Formula 451 Omega instead uh -huh. of water or salt water or Leviathan blood or any other chemical base. Mm -hmm. It is the basis. However, the initial 
experiments of using just Murray's base didn't necessarily pan out. That's why it took as long as it did to get yeah. where he did. And he, while he was working on that, allowed um, Archie used the Murmur Venture Project to clean up his experimental strafe, what was mm -hmm. left over from his early days of experimenting with this drug. Um, yeah. What ultimately led to his breakthrough was because of the party, however, when they brought that formula from Skurlock with the modified murmur mm -hmm. that he and his paramour and the Shrike and all them had made that uh, caused the, like, the failed, the, 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 the almost failed version of murmur that always caused bad memories instead of good, mm -hmm. um, which they brought to him and he used as a base and realized that the spiritual vector that was put into it by uh, Skurlock mm -hmm. worked as a better vector for carrying it, which is why the red version of Omega has that black snake-like smoke yeah. thing that seems to be yep. alive in it. So what, because what that does is, in the way that it works, is that he worked out that, you know, they had put in a spiritual factor that targets a specific portion of the brain. Once he figured out how to do that, it wasn't a matter of recreating that result particularly. It was a matter of getting it to target the specific part of the brain he wanted it to. And so when he could get that in there in uh -huh. conjunction with the murmur as a base and then distill it through the rest of the formula of pyro, it led to formula 451 omega. Omega. AKA kindling. Is that correct? Kindling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the reason I ask this is because uh, Rue is speculating that uh, Murmur may, as a long, for people who use it in long term, uh, may become more easily influenced due to them being in this like nostalgia state. So, you know, just have that crumb, do whatever you want with it. I'm here to. No one knows pain. the long term effects of Murmur use at this point. Nope. No one so has any way to think about the long term effects of Murmur use at this point. Nope. But it it there are long term effects. I will say that. Yep, yep. There it is. So sorry, Rue. I tried. Um, so we're back at uh, highlights. We did favorite episodes. How about favorite story beats or moments? However you want to take this. Okay. So yeah. So story beats is the thing. <laughs> For Fire in the Dark, we love, you know, everyone loves a finale, everyone loves a climax, everyone's like loves the, the, the big showiness. But setting that aside, my personal favorite story beat in this is specifically rising action. Uh, rising action being when things really start to take off. And in Fire in the Dark, that moment is starts at episode four where Archie goes, hey, we're making money now. And I gave everyone just an immediate payout at the beginning of yep. the session kind of a thing. Welcome to right, and this is was almost my signal of welcome to rising action. Things are ramping up. Episodes four, five, six, seven. From here, things are gonna, you know, basically go like in an upward angle, and things are gonna start yep. connecting together in the dots. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of the rising action or the rising potential energy is, and, and the rising consequences of that. The story beat is really well hit by the episode with Wick in it, where they literally blew up a building. If you wanted a pure representation of energy going too far, going further than it needs to, uh -huh. 
a bomb causing a building collapse and killing 40 plus people is a really, really good representation of that. That is very fair. Uh, and actually, since you brought up the Wick episode, I've asked everybody on the crew this. Uh, how did it feel adding a... We've talked about this forever, but how did it feel adding a fifth member to the crew? It actually felt pretty good for the most part. It wasn't that unmanageable for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've told this story to you before, but to put it out in the universe, my first D&D &D game, which was my first TTRPG I ever ran, had nine players in it. Mm -hmm. And that was too much. And it gave me a little bit of trauma around it. So I try to limit my tables to not including the GM four players max at this point. Yep. Um, and I still like that number. I still try to keep it at a healthy four players. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I try not to go beyond that. Five is pushing it, but I will do it specifically uh, to get some people involved when I need to and the like. But I prefer to keep it at four players. Uh, adding the fifth element, adding that, I, I guess, for that explosive uh, little uh, yeah. mystery to element mm -hmm. to it all was definitely a joy. Uh, and of course... It was a little easier in here because I'm familiar with Wick. I know Wick's character. Uh, I've played yeah. with you before. I know what you're like. I know what you're like playing Wick. Even in this case of playing a of uh, several years in the future Wick, who is mm -hmm. a little more jaded than the Wick yep. that I remember. Um, a little more office rocker in some respects. Yeah. Um, unstable, if you will. Unstable. And a little more or rather say a little less of a people person than he used to be. Uh, Which he really wasn't at the beginning, so it's only gone really wasn't. from here. No, so it's the fact that he's even less, like, it's kind of that thing of, like, his wick is, like, he comes out of his lab, like, to interact with people, like, once a month, and he's like, all right, that's good. I'm good for yep. me. Back to my lab. Um, yep. So, like, I appreciated Wick. I appreciated having him for that session. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was a great session. Uh, it was not having a fifth person was not overwhelming. That said, mm -hmm. I still just for personal reasons try to keep it a four. Oh yeah, but in the case of looking at maybe one episode of season two, and of one course, maybe two episodes of season two, I yeah. would more than be happy to welcome uh, guests uh, and mm -hmm. guest characters. We have talked about this a little bit yep. and potential guests, so. Look forward to the future for anyone who's interested that we may have some fun few friends joining us mm -hmm. here or there for an episode or two. And um, for the cast who is going to watch this because they're dying for this interview right now, um, that was me making sure it was recorded so that way y'all knew that we had already talked about this. So you're yes. welcome. Yeah. Um, I have ideas for guests. We'll be reaching out to them, obviously, but yeah. that's that's a future that's a future we're, us problem. We're, we're taking we're taking time off after this, so yeah, like... we're we're on break. One of us is getting married and going on a honeymoon. Like we've got yeah, we got shit to do. We got shit to do, <laughs> and we got planning to do. We got a whole session zero we got to do for season two, yeah. and like getting things prepped. And season two is taking place several months in the future from the finale, so like. Things have changed in Dusk Vault. Um, yep. Which, um, we'll, we'll get to that. We're still in, still in season one. Uh, we talked about this during our decompress. Uh, but to kind of put it out in the open for our audience, 
talking about season one overall. And fa- yeah, best way to put this, favorite moment for each character. For each character. Um, so having time to kind of reflect on it uh, and, and including the finale with this, because I, I, I yeah. am going to do that. I think for each character, it's it really is pretty unique across the board. For Silas, for Rue's character, Crow, it really is mm. that first time interacting with the flock. Um, because prior to that yeah. session, I had given Rue a basically a little dossier on, uh, hey, this is what you know about the flock. Uh, this yep. is, you know, the crew you used to be a part of. Uh, keep this in mind when y'all are going to go interact with them. And they took that and they just ran with it. And the way yep. that they chose to interact with everyone, it was so personable. And it really felt like they had just been a member of this crew for a long time uh, mm-hmm. prior to leaving and joining the Marmor Venture Project. It just, it was, it was really fun to interact with them in that moment and to see them kind of shine. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Mort, I gotta say, I think it really comes down to that confrontation with his father in the finale. It, I absolutely like the way that whole scene worked out. Like, if there was a scene that I could have animated and watch, like. Mm-hmm. That fight with Tristero in the background and Inspector uh, Asher, like starting with Asher in the background and Asher going, "You got this. You've got this handled. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go." And then switching and like the fight continues to rage on with the like various. And then Tristero comes down and is like, "You, you good, buddy?" Gunshot goes off. All right, okay. And Tristero goes in. Starts opening a safe, gathering up some maps. There's building is literally falling apart around him. Fire mm-hmm. alarms going and just and just like we would flash back and forth between Mort and his father, just beating the shit, literally tearing each other apart with monstrous claws yeah. at various points. And we just at various times, just like as that's happening, it'd be like that scene when uh, the first Avengers movie of Hulk and like breaking through the library mm-hmm. and Stan Lee's just there, just like mopping. We just yeah. flash back to Tristero just doing that, like. Marking some stuff on a map, opening a set, just that scene. If I could have a scene animated, if I could have a scene that with a, like a score to it, like music, mm-hmm. everything, that scene. Uh, I love that scene for Mort and overall. For Tristero, my God, if I could have a scene of Tristero, it's either just his entire experience in that hospital bed in episode uh, yeah. four. That would yeah. be very funny to watch. Or... His confrontation with Mother Naria. Yeah. I, that that one, because I did not have that planned, obviously, because I didn't know what he was going to do for mm-hmm. his uh, downtime or the yeah. consequences of him overindulging his vice until we got there. I, I didn't have that planned. But then the way that it rolled out and how perfectly it worked for his story, it just absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. As for Spectre... The closet scene has to come up as as a classic memory, of course. But yeah, when it comes to Spectre, I really think that episode seven mm-hmm. and what happened with her eye, really, because again, that was yeah. an idea that kind of came from the group with a combination of me and Cole and uh, uh, Parker all kind of like mm-hmm. talking together in that moment and the way that just panned out. I really love how that scene and the repercussions that kind of had kind of looking into the next 
bit of what happened into episode eight and how yep. Spectre now can look into people's auras and kind of the things mm -hmm. around them and how that now spiraled into with episode at the end of episode eight and the finale of how that loss of trust and how I know Parker probably talked about it on her interview, but I know it's talked about it with me of how like everyone's getting the eye now. She ain't yeah. trusting like that anymore. She's analyzing everyone's auras. So would they have figured out something was up with Archie if they had looked? No. Okay. No. His aura does not portray if they looked at Archie's aura Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have given it away. Okay. In fact, they probably would have thought it was very sweet. That's sad, actually. Um, well, yeah, because we, we talked about that, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, Asher won't feel better about it, but maybe Parker will, maybe? Who knows? Who's um, to say? No, Who's that eye, if looked at Archie, you you wouldn't have gotten a damn thing. It, mm -hmm. In fact, you probably would have thought it was one of the sweetest things you'd ever seen in your life prior to the betrayal. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. That makes it so much worse. Um, And then, let's see. Uh, I've talked about these individually with the group, but like kind of working backwards. For me, Spectre's my favorite moment with Spectre was definitely uh, episode three when they went out to the Deathlands. And, and you were just safe. like, there's a safe. And the entire personality shifted and the only focus was that safe. And I was like, this is our lurk. And I love them so much. It was so good. I do love that scene. It's a really good scene. Oh. That entire scene with that monster in the Deadlands mm -hmm. of like, it was another good portrayal of what everyone was capable yep. of. That that's the one that I think I want to say it was Cole who said this, but like if you could actually it was kind of Parker Cole and Rue all said something similar. If you could take a single scene, much like you think with the party, if you could take a single scene where everyone is in the same room, mm -hmm. all doing what they're meant to do, that is the scene to do it in. Oh yeah, no, you got Rue who's trying to like with Crow trying to communicate with it, and when that's not working, trying to like open up a a, a door, a ghost door to get mm -hmm. out. You got uh, Asher who uh, Specter who's like stole the thing in the first place, is trying to get yep. it out, and then got distracted by the safe. You've yep. got Mort who is literally wrangling the damn thing, yep. and then you've got Tristero who's trying to like coordinate everything and like keep everything one calm and like give directions and like. Uh, while, fortify everyone else while wearing the priest robes yeah while wearing the priest he, robes yeah they randomly found to try and commune with it um yeah so like for for crow slash silas that was obviously my pick was silas talking to the monster but then also lunch with jay was my other one because it was just very cute mm -hmm. um more for me was definitely like I, I want a painted shot of, like, the first time meeting the hunt and the last time meeting the hunt and do, like, the cross-section down the middle of those two and just see the differences in those characters. Um, and then Tristero, 
it's got to be the speech in episode six yeah for me um mainly because wick and mort are both like trying to drag them out of there at this point because wick's like we got 30 seconds dude like can we go (laughs) um that bomb's gonna go off and i ain't gonna be here um that episode was so good thank you for letting me play that episode was so good (laughs) um but yeah so we've hit uh favorite episodes favorite moments favorite story beats um Mm -hmm. let's talk about things that did or did not happen maybe there was an unexplored thread there was there is is it your favorite and what was it if you want to talk about it so the unexplored thread obviously was to go a completely different route with the greyhounds or the foghounds sorry yeah um don't get me wrong i love the deadlands i love mm-hmm. what they did with that i think that is an exemplar episode i think i had a lot of fun i would not change a damn thing obviously there is another path they could have gone down where yeah. they let the foghounds die where they help uh where or they do it themselves on behalf of the hunt take them out yeah. help more take them down for the hunt that was an unexplored thread that would have had repercussions going down from yep. there uh may it would have colored their interaction with scurlock and what he expected from them he likely wouldn't have asked them to steal something he might have actually asked them to kill someone um yep. further than that if they go further down that road, the interactions they would have probably had, uh, I had, so they showed up in session zero, was not on mm-hmm. screen, but yep. the Dimmer Sisters is one of my favorite groups in Doskfall and one of my favorite we did, gangs. We did get one interaction with the Dimmer Sisters on screen. We, we did get one manner interaction in a downtime with yeah. Crow and Echo. Yep. But the Dimmer Sisters are one of my favorite and they, uh, for off screen, when we did our session zero with everyone, we did a test job, kind of the uh, implementation of the group, which was mm. with the Dimmer Sisters, where they stole something on behalf of the Dimmer Sisters from the Foghounds in order to get something for Archie. That was actually the thing he needed to purify Murmur in the first place, and the reason he hired them in the first place at all. Everything that happened after that, that is to say all of season one, was mm. basically superfluous for the sake of Archie. Um, But regardless, anything to do with the Dimmer Sisters, that would have been a completely different route if they'd gone the more occult, esoteric side of things, if they leaned heavier into their relationship with the Hunt and leaned heavier into their relationship with Scarlock. It would have led to more interaction with the Dimmer Sisters. We would have had a completely different route when it came down to uh various things in terms of the firebugs uh mm-hmm. frankly i probably wouldn't have been in the best interest to actually have wick come in i would have had you yeah or i actually honestly put it probably would have asked your wife to come play a dimmer sister um yeah yeah that then, tracks <laughs> uh and have a it just it would have co- changed the color of things so yeah Okay, but now I need now I need Mariah to play a Dimmer sister. Maybe. Again, Maybe. things to be discussed in the future. I mean, also it doesn't have to be on stream. I just meant in general. Uh, I yeah, need this fair. now. Um anyway. So yeah, anyway. there are unexplored threads. 
and a lot of them do go down that more occult esoteric route which mm. is my favorite part of most storytelling so yeah i you know am i, I sad about it though not really i really like what they did i really like what they decided to do and i love uh, how the characters decide to run things, and I put the jobs in front of them that best fit what they were going for and what worked best for them. Yep. Um, and then kind of peeking at the interviews that I've been doing, since um, no one else in the cast has seen them except for me, um, I think you're going to get more of your what you, what you normally enjoy in Season 2. I think you're going to get a little more weird. I'm counting on it, given yeah. the weirdness that surrounds the various characters that make up the Kindled. I, well, I mean, yes, you're going to get more weird just from you having your villains, but I mean, also, your crew seems to be tending towards more weird, and I'm excited. That is part um, of their reputation. It is. Now, let's see. So that was favorite unexplored thread. Um... Was there anything you were hoping would happen in season one that didn't? Anything I was hoping would happen in season one that didn't. No one died. Is yeah. The thing. I, yeah. I, I, no one died or ended up having to leave the crew. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't really want anyone to do that because I really liked all of the characters. Mm -hmm. But the narrative flavor that could have come out of Mort dying in that final fight with his father or... Yep. Tristero falling to save his friends, mm -hmm. mirroring the way that he lost his friend in the first place and his backstory mm -hmm. kind of a thing. There's just a certain narrative juice to those that I think would be fun. That said, I also didn't want any of them to die because or or have to leave because they got too many quirks, because I wanted to finish exploring their stories and things like yep. that in like some of them, I haven't even really got to start exploring their stories. We're gonna... Yep. A lot we're of we're getting that... to that. Okay. Yeah, we're getting to that. I I have questions. They're not on here. I have questions. Um, sure. So, and then kind of in the same... In the opposite vein, uh, was there anything that was presented in Season 1 that you would have... Uh, you might have regrets or reserves about and wanted to have changed? Yeah, there is there is one episode, episode five, I would have done things a little bit differently. That was the casino episode. Um mm -hmm. one, I I that the villain of that episode, I would have done some different things with how I presented him and the mm -hmm. like, uh, and how I presented it. And then I also regret a missed opportunity with that episode to have put in an NPC that could have been there. That I could have brought back to bite them later. Uh, no mm. real spoilers there, but oh, it, was, yeah. it, it presented an NPC. I realized there was an NPC that I had in my back pocket that was mm -hmm. relevant and important that I could have put in that scene, and it would have added a lot more in terms yeah. of not just the scene itself, but also mm. one of our characters' backstories and relationships. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I realized I, I really missed an opportunity there, and not to, like, again, not to talk about it too much, because it'll probably become relevant in season two, but I... Mm -hmm. hmm. Good to know. Um, 
Interesting. Well, yeah, it, and I mean, we, you and I have talked extensively about season one because usually what ends up happening is we'll go play Genshin after, and it will just right. be me raving about how you're a master of the game and everything you do. Oh, Thanks. you're not. Right. We're not even to the sappy part yet, motherfucker. I know we're not, you asshole. We can't <laughs> even do that now because Genshin's down for maintenance. So, that, well, uh. that's why we're doing this interview. <laughs> um, so. Uh, talking about NPCs, uh, and just to give us a little bit of a breather before we dive into the finale, um, for NPCs like the Flock, the Hunt, Silver Stag, uh, the Ministry of Preservation Labs, you know, any mm-hmm. anyone you want to talk about, were there any specific inspirations that you drew from while developing these NPCs and places we saw within the story? Yes, actually. Um, so the hunt is pulled from the Magnus archives, almost like almost wholesale ripped. Is the yeah. hunt is one of the big thirteen great old ones, and then whipped around, modified into a demon in some respect. Give it a personification, make it a little less scary, but a little more interactable. Yeah. Less of this manifestation of an overarching fear, and mm-hmm. more of a tangible, interactable demonic presence. Mm-hmm. um is the thing i i basically i really like the magnus archives for the most part uh don't get me wrong it has some problems and issues but i definitely like some of their world building and and entities mm-hmm. so the hunt wholesale the silver stag the silver stag is heavily inspired mm-hmm. by a um casino from one of my favorite book series that you can't really see it it's on my shelf over here i think it's around i don't know it's over there uh uh the uh grishaverse series by leigh bardugo uh specifically though from six of crows and uh crooked kingdom which is the duology that's in the middle right now yep uh absolutely adore those books absolutely adore the world building six of crows and crooked kingdom take place in a city that is very similar to Duskval in a lot mm-hmm. of respects and on the water a lot of that a lot of that series takes place as the kind of home base area is along the water where there's this row of casinos in an area called the barrel um, yep. and so the silver stag is based off of uh, a casino in that book mm-hmm. uh, beyond that the flock is actually largely by and by inspired by Crow and mm-hmm. Rue's whole character. Like, basically, Rue made the character of the Crow and had this background with Scurlock, and I was like, I'm going to take that. I'm going to make a whole flock, literally, yep. and kind of just built off of that. And then each of the characters had their own individual inspirations, but as the flock as a whole, there wasn't yeah. any particular in, uh, individual as for the Ministry of Preservation Labs, the Ministry of Preservation Labs is, for what you interacted with it, is largely inspired by control. Um, yep. The brutalist architecture, uh, the idea of how it's set up, and the kind of experiments that they're running there is very heavily inspired by uh, the control, which is itself inspired by another piece of media that I enjoy, uh, SCP, and yep. the kind of whole organization around there. So that's that was a lot of the inspiration in that. Beyond that, um, mm-hmm. a lot of the overarching inspiration for a lot of 
groups and things in Toskval. I do pull a lot of that from Dishonored, yep. uh, just in terms of how I categorize things and how I narratively describe things. So there's a lot of kind of filth, and a lot of like the rats. It's kind of mm -hmm. this very Victorian style gas lamp. In, uh, esque. Literally that first episode that we did in the, uh, the prison, the layout yeah. of that prison is wholesale inspired by the prison break scene in the first Dishonored game. Yeah, that very um, first mission in Dishonored. Yep, where it's just instead of breaking out of a prison, they were breaking into a prison. Yep. Um, Which, so. I, as we've discussed already, uh, both of us really love Dishonored, so I loved getting to see that and being like, oh, I know, I know where we're at in, in mm -hmm. the layout right now. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then also, y'all, if you haven't played Control, uh, Jamie recommended it to me. Go play it. It's so good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go play Control, um, 100%. Uh, I also recommend looking into, if you like uh, creepy pasta kind of style stuff, looking into SCP. Uh, yep. Kickstarter has some issues right now, obviously, with, uh, with fucking crypto and things alike. But if you are yep. still doing Kickstarter stuff, uh, there's actually an SCP Kickstarter right now for basically like big paperback editions of a lot of the collections of stories. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. they just wrapped the I know the and the hardcover versions are also on pre-order, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah, and the, um, the, the paperbacks are what's being kickstarted yeah. right now. Yep. So, go check that yeah. out. Lots of cool stuff. If you uh, like this it... kind of media, go there. Yeah. And check check out control for sure. Um yeah. so uh, hashtag not sponsored. Not sponsored. Um, not even a little. Now we hit the finale. Oh boy. Where I have all these questions are Archie related. Unsurprising, uh, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, I'll start with this one because um, I wanted to talk about it earlier. When describing Archie as your favorite NPC to get into, uh, the party asks, was there any major hints regarding the ending that we all missed? Yes. Yes. Several of them. Um, you know one of them, one of the major ones, because it was in the episode that you were in. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, one of the major hints that y'all missed was Mort literally pulled out a distillery, a cheap knockoff distillery of the thing that you stole from the Dimmer Sisters in the very first session zero episode not stole got from the dimmer sisters for archie yep. in session zero now don't get me wrong i had a excuse for archie in my back pocket where he would have been very confused of course how the hell did that happen where did they get their hands on something like that there's only supposed to be one of those in existence and we have it so I have... and then he would have gone in this spiel about how maybe they found the plans for the original somewhere they have the paperwork and that might be a thing we need to look into and the reason it looks like it's such a poor knockoff is that maybe they don't have a complete plans for the original which is why it doesn't look as good or it doesn't function as well uh so, that was the big yeah. hint that, that was the biggest boom, one went over everyone's head yeah um like i saw gears start to turn but you picked that up at the same time the bomb got like turned on Lit. so you're all like the panic got induced and it yep. got left behind um yep no because and that also hit my favorite moment from that episode because you know me way too damn well 
where you're like, you can guarantee the bomb goes off, but your time's cut in half. And of course I'm going to say yes. Of course you're going to say yes. Absolutely. Uh, beyond that, in terms of other hints, there were little things. Uh, how he responded to Skag specifically. Um, yeah. And how he he interacted with Skag. Uh, the fact that anyone with a basic modicum of common sense would not have invited Echo to the boat on that first job. Um, yeah. Just things of that nature. There's there's a lot uh, that just little things. The big one, though, the big one was episode six with the distillery. That was yep. the thing that was supposed to make you suspicious. It did not work. No, they love him too much. Um, oh, here's an easy one. Is Archie his real name? Yes. Dr. Yep. Archibald Dalmore IV. That is his real name. Um, and let's see. Oh, I like this one. Uh, if Archie was a bait good, what would he be? And yes, I'm asking myself what tastes like betrayal now. So baked goods, obviously, were a big theme throughout the entire show. It just yeah. kind of became a thing. It, it, was, it didn't mean anything. It didn't symbolize anything. It was just a nice thing to do, and it helped. Uh, there, it's one of those things that as a GM, you're like, there's literally no harm in doing this. It mm. makes it, It's a, a happy little thing to give the players. It's kind of funny. Why not? And so yes. like, it's just one of those things where it's like, I can throw a random baked good at the beginning, and it kind of gets y'all into character and excited for the job. But in terms of if Archie was a baked good, that's an easy one. He's a raspberry tart. The reason for that being is it looks really fruity, but it's more sour than you thought it would be. <laughs> well, um, Parker, I hope you look forward to making those. Because uh, that was from her, obviously. <laughs> I'm surprised, as she is literally the one who baked a modified version of the baked good that I uh, described in episode five, six? Five. It was five? the casino. Yeah, the casino episode, yeah. What media references inspired the true Archie? Promare, again. Um, okay, yeah. From Promare again. If you go look, for anyone who knows Promare, or if you don't, go watch Promare, and once you've watched the whole thing and you know who the main antagonist is and that kind of thing, he really was the inspiration for Archie and Archie's character uh, kind mm. of arc and all that. Um, there is kind of uh, a very big aspect of the greater good kind of idea, a little bit Machiavellian, which was mm. also another inspiration for Archie really is Machiavelli. Uh, yeah. So mm. that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, I, beyond that, uh, the lies of Lamora. If you haven't read that book, I would go recommend reading Eliza Lacamara. Read it, and mm. you'll know exactly who the reference to Archie is and what yep. Archie's based off of. I think that's also a touchstone for it is Blades. A touchstone for yeah. Blades. Yep. It's, it's just a good my... book, also. I recommend it. Yeah, it's on my to-read list. Scott, uh, I, I will say it does have a little bit of that classic 1980s misogyny in it, but yeah. uh, for classic 1980s fantasy misogyny. But surprisingly for its time period it was a little bit better than most so hmm. doesn't mean it's still good but take that with a grain of salt when you go to read it yeah good to know uh let's see uh the okay so uh i'll dive into a couple questions i have because after that it's like the monologue and 
the mass sure. figures. So we'll we'll save that. Uh first off, fucking phenomenal job at this finale. Um thank you. Like you you had me hyped since you told me that Archie was the main baddie. Uh back got episode three or four? Right before like, episode three. Right before episode three. Um, I, had it, I had it absolutely 100% figured out by episode yeah. two. I had it theoretically he was the, one of the possibilities for the main villain mm-hmm. in episode one, but like I had some ideas and options I was still playing with. Episode two is a pretty locked down on Archie. Um, and I told mm. you a little before episode three, and then you had to sit with that for two and a half months. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and play a character who had no clue. And play a character who had no clue whatsoever, which was absolutely hilarious to watch. Yep. No, I just corrected his math homework instead. Watching you get into characters that feel like you're in your element. How did it feel to just play a nasty, terrible white man? Oh, God, I hated it. Yeah. It it made me so uncomfortable. We're talking about Vile Smasher, by the way. Yeah, like... Playing Vile Smasher was like it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Don't get me wrong. Mm. It it there's something cathartic in playing someone that you know is just not a good person and deserves mm. everything that's coming to them, and then to watch them get that. There is yeah. something cathartic about that. Embodying that character, mm. it, it it feels a little gross sometimes, and it it kind of is a nice thing that you know I didn't have to be in that character for very long um yeah that said i think it is also an important archetype to represent in terms of mm-hmm. individuals and their motivations and how people view themselves as being in the right and entitled mm-hmm. uh especially as someone who has had to interact with people exactly like file smasher yep uh and then let's see we didn't we got to see a little bit of it, but I feel like we didn't get a whole lot of Jackal. Like we got the essence of Jackal, but yeah. the next thing I knew he was dead. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. But but still, interesting character. It was fun to see. Yeah, uh, Jackal Bob- Jackal was one of those characters who got really heavily influenced by a piece of media in the terms of me watching a piece of media and watching the Mm. actors in a piece of media of how they portray someone who is slimy and a businessman and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and literally uh, learning kind of how they do not just body language, but Mm -hmm. vocal things and how they talk. So with Jackal and other individuals that I've gotten to play since uh, Mm. specifically for you, Mordecai in a game that we're in, that we've talked about with someone like that and you're when you can tell i'm trying to portray someone who is a little bit prim and proper and also a little Mm -hmm. bit slimy instead of talking like i normally talk i start talking at the front of my mouth i start talking up here i get very percussive in how i talk and then Mm -hmm. i might add a little bit of an accent depending if i'm trying to go for something a little more posh then i'm going to talk in this very succinct way where i am immensely talking down to you because you absolutely are the biggest fool that i've ever had the displeasure of having to work with 
And if you could just listen for one moment, you incompetent ingrate. Whereas you can do the same thing talking at the front of your mouth, but then you kind of got to talk down here if you're going to do a bit of a con man kind of a thing and you're like, yeah. hey, look, Decky, I want you to help me, to want you, to want me, to want to help, to help. You understand? No, of course you don't. Listen here, Jackie. I have got what you need. And it's right here. It's this little vial. See, ever heard of this? Call it pyro on the streets. I'm pushing it for you. And you know what I'm pushing it for? We're going to make the big bucks, Jackie. We're going to make the big bucks. This is opposed to if I'm trying to give someone who's a bit more laid back, I'm going to try to talk more open-mouthed and talk mm. from the roof of my mouth specifically. Mm. That's how you get people a little more like Mort or... I'm talking from the hunt, or I'm yep. talking from his dad, you know, and kind of uh, Jacoby Morrison, mm -hmm. the hunt kind of a thing. You start talking, you start moving the voice back, and it's yep. it's a little bit more relaxed in a way, no less intelligent, no less mm -hmm. in control. It takes a certain amount of vocal control to kind of do that talking at the front of your mouth is actually a lot easier is the thing mm -hmm. it's talking at the back and getting that shift is that's that takes like opening up your soft palate kind of a thing yeah it just takes practice yep so there you go voice lessons from jamie wolf which i always love i love your npcs so like i i was immediately i wanted i was carrying ready to stab mordecai again which is what happened in our last session oh yeah um, uh, almost happened no, anyway. I part of my background in that does come from a background of uh, as a child, I had to move a lot and uh, mm -hmm. to s different countries. Even I lived in England during yep. uh, a lot of my vocal learning when I was very mm -hmm. young in what we would call first grade, uh, year one over there. Uh, a lot yep. of my primary development, and then I also grew up constantly going to the American South. Uh, a yep. lot of my extended families in. Alabama, Tennessee, I uh, got some in Texas, uh, mm -hmm. like, and you just mm -hmm. get a lot of, when you're around those people, you get a lot of practice falling into that accent. It's really easy to me to do right now because I was just down there visiting family. But uh, basically, that is a great place to start working on open up your soft palate. And then from there, you kind of work in the work in the vocal range and like and then you know you can also start messing around with other accents at a great place to learn accents just start listening to npr and like copying the voices of people who get interviewed on there that works really well i'm so for that okay a big one for a lot of us was uh crow slash silas confronting vile smasher mm -hmm summoning ghosts and then we go to break how did it feel coming back from break and seeing rue i was so hyped and excited like i came back and he had done his whole makeup up he's got the running mascara the blood everything it was just like i'm like yes you have fully embodied exactly the feelings here, you have added a whole other level to the scene than I was expecting. I'm so ready to go into this. Thank you. I, I yep. did not ask Rue to do that. I did not require Rue to do that. I did not even know Rue was going to do that. And then they came back and they looked like that. And I was so fucking hyped for it. And then it just played so well into the narrative of everything between that and then with Asher and the throat ripping and the ghost compiling yep. and just the like 
the extra terrest the extra planar uh esoteric nuance of it and just like that yes it was very good um and kind of in that same scene we get one of the first instances of asher doing an aura read with the eye mm -hmm. with the eye uh, now i'm not going to ask you this because I think you know the answer, but I've asked everyone looking at Crow with all of those strings, all of them cut save for one at the head. So, so far, I've gotten a variety of answers for that. I've gotten, uh, let's see, Skurlock slash the flock, uh, the Murmur Venture Project, like the crew of four, and then Archie. Um, which before betrayal, so who knows? Maybe we'll see in season two if that string got cut or not. Um, and you're doing such a good job of not showing any emotion for this, and I love it. Um, just like you did for a whole season with Archie. Just like I did for a whole season, whereas you had to go stare at your phone to avoid giving away well, anything. Well, only during the finale, because I was just getting more and more hyped, and I was like, I can't, I can't show it. I gotta calm down a little bit. Uh, yeah, no, I know. I know. I remember. I'm so it's so good. Go it was it go was watch the finale again. If you've already seen it, I don't care. Go watch it. <laughs> so good. Uh yeah. Anyway, so yeah, and, no. That was yeah. I, I was waiting for I was waiting for Asher to do an aura read. I didn't know who it was gonna be on. I didn't know when it was gonna be. Yeah. But I was ready. So I, I had that prepped. Um and so the fact that they did it there and I just got to do that little bit in the background of like, here's like a, at a glance, Crow. Not a, mm -hmm. not an analysis of Silas or anything, but it is yeah. a good at a glance of Crow. Mm -hmm. Here's the person you're actually looking at, though. Um, and then going into the depth about that. Yep. It, it was so good. Uh, one thing that you constantly get complimented on is like your descriptions. Um, and yeah. Not just for me. I, I've had, I was talking to people earlier this week about the show and that was like their number one thing was just they popped in and they were immediately immersed because you were describing, uh, I think we were uh, at the part where Mort was meeting his father oh. and like the description of the burned demon and the teeth and everything just mm, so good. Yeah. Um, that's We've that already, is a learned skill. It's from watching others and then yep. practice. It's just um you already mentioned it. Asher going full rogue sneak attack mode was phenomenal. Oh yeah. Uh and the whole description there was really good. Uh then we drop down to the basement, mm -hmm. which I'm kind of going out of order, but we drop down to the basement and we get the burn demon. Jacob B. Morrison. Uh, how how did it feel to finally get to bring some of Mort's backstory front and center? Yeah, so Mort's backstory is one of these things that's been quietly burning in the background of this entire game from the beginning. Mort's backstory, a lot of it has to do with his his old uh, his his old uh, unit. He was in the Imperial military and that kind of things. We got to see a little bit of that when he burned his uniform uh, and kind of 
severed that connection for himself, uh, which was a very mm -hmm. impactful moment in uh, that episode. We got to see a little bit of it in his downtime situations where he would go to see Marjorie and like help clean the gym or mm -hmm. go do some boxing workouts or maybe have a drink with Marjorie kind of a thing. It was a lot of the quiet, subtle stuff in the background. And it was this quiet, burning thing that kind of for Mort influenced how, how he came to be associated with the hunt also mm -hmm. is the thing in his whole backstory. And then to kind of tie that in to Jacoby e. Morrison and putting Jacoby e. in front of Mort and Mort basically having to, in a very visceral sense, confront not only the consequences of his own actions via mm -hmm. not only the hunt and his backstory, but also to have a chance to confront on his own terms the thing that defined him and this mm -hmm. nickname, you know, the mouth that he yep. hated, that he was given to him. It was his street name, but he hated it because it's the thing that he really didn't feel was not even earned. He, he found it semi-disgusting. And yeah. so um, to kind of have a chance to re redo that confrontation, to have mm -hmm. the man in front of him who, because of him, he came away with this, with this nickname and everything, and just to get to do it all over again, yep. but in a way that he got defined by his own power that he had earned, that he had taken, mm -hmm. and that he had come into fruition through the hunt and his own actions. It just, to tie all that together with Jacob E. Morrison and to put a very real person, a very tangible thing for more mm -hmm. to confront is very good. And I really like how uh, John played out his character with that. It was a phenomenal, like we've mentioned it already. I, we both need the animated scene with the score and like all of the nasty transformations that happen during that with like the claws and the scale armor and everything else i need all of it oh yeah um folks who did castlevania if you want to hit us up <laughs> that'd be great uh, uh i love castlevania um yeah let's see i'm trying and that i am i have a bunch of questions regarding mort's backstory because the way i interpreted it and how john interpreted it were very different mm -hmm. um because i took it to mean that the mom's off in tykros um yep. and with his sister yep. with his sister okay so john's correct i thought the sister might still be at dustfall no nope. uh, well I, maybe who's to say maybe but john's mom yeah or not john's mom but mort's mom mort's mom mort's mother and his sister after uh mort's father was killed um yep. which he, he was technically killed he just woke back up um, yeah after mort's father was killed when mort's father woke back up he quietly arranged to have mm -hmm. mort's mother and sister sent to tykeros interesting okay as far as mort's mother and sister are concerned Mort's father is dead and has been dead this whole time. Yeah, they didn't know he woke back up. They don't know he woke back up. Interesting. Okay. So, 
I, I'm very excited to see what might come up in Ward's yeah. backstory, it's, especially now that the hunt's even more embedded. Yeah. In it really was a story of the fall of the house of Morrison because, yeah, uh, you know, Mort came from a noble house in Doskfall, but mm -hmm. between the father dying, him being in a failed coup in the military, and then his mother and sister being sent off, the house of Morrison doesn't exist anymore in Doskfall. It is as yeah. a noble house is fallen. Yep. And then, so we get that very climactic fight, and then um, again, a scene where we get kind of, we've seen this build up throughout the season of Tristero kind of having to step up and act as the leader. Um, mm -hmm. And especially with the handing off of the keys during the finale, to get to see Tristero have to pull Mort back up was so good. Such really a good was. scene. It really um, was. At, especially after goofing the fuck off and getting a safe in the meantime. But hey, they got paid. They um, got paid. You know, they usually find a way to get paid some way or another. They, they do. Uh, and the... Actually, I'm I'm going to go off on a quick tangent. We should probably talk about the fact that we thought Tristero was going to last four episodes. We had a Correct. countdown. <laughs> we, we we had a countdown if that man was going to get a quirk every episode. Yep. Because and then he'd just be gone. He would just be gone. Because it was it was all on stream, right? Oh, didn't yeah. Quirk, he I didn't quirk out in, episode, in his session zero. Yeah. So... Got close, but he didn't. Fair. Uh, so that was really... I I love how Cole drives characters. Um... Because we see the same thing over in Denari's house. Like a stolen race. car? Like a stolen car. Uh, the fact of the matter is that I'm very glad that Tristero didn't end up having to leave because of how I built Marasi uh, and into the story and that how the same which, trauma affected characters very differently. Which, speaking of Marasi, as, as the other person who knew Marasi was one of the masked figures, the fucking hangman's gallow scene. You didn't this know is, about that. I didn't. And this is where I go, how dare you? <laughs> yep. This is the point where I had told Brandon prior to this, Brandon knew about Archie. Brandon yep. knew about the masked figures who were going to be with Archie. And he knew that one of them was also Marasi. That yep. was pretty much it outside of a season two thing that he knows. Um, yeah. But... That was all Brandon knew going into the finale. He did not know about Jacoby Morrison. Nope. He did not know about the hangman scene. Nope. Uh, he... I, I knew nothing about Bear or Vile Smasher or Jackal. Nope. He knew absolutely nothing about Talia, aka Bear, or mm. any of that. He didn't know any of that stuff. What he did know was that Marasi was going to be behind one of the masks. So when I put that hangman scene in front of him, Y'all didn't get to see it because Brandon's face isn't on camera except in that one episode. He absolutely, he had to leave, basically. He had to yeah. turn around and fucking leave because we, the players slash GM, can see the producer yeah. for the whole show, but y'all yep. can't. And when I did that, he had to turn and, like, go to his door and, like, disappear from it just to, like, hide his face because he was not, I, I... he was not here. No, you hit that scene, and my 
like the initial thought was holy shit Marasi's dead and that's where I like started to react and then it hit me and I was like I gotta go I gotta leave <laughs> it yes. was so good yes. and it uh, had the exact effect on Tricero I wanted it to have between it, that yep. and then revealing Marasi behind the fox mask it, yeah it was everything that was so good and I, um, I told Cole, I told Cole that at the end of the finale, he was not going to want to retire Tristero. Yeah. Because Cole had talked about retiring Tristero at the end of this season, one way or another, for a long time. And then I threw it out there and I was like, I think it was episode five. I was like, trust mm -hmm. me, at the end of this season, you are going to want Tristero to be still around. And he's like, right. okay. Sure, I'll believe you for now um yeah for for a man who thought he was gonna have nothing left at the end they sure had a lot left to deal with yeah uh, um so now now we're outside uh we've successfully taken out uh three members of the firebug generals all that's left is talia uh who escapes yeah and that was with a fight with silas and rick you pulled out the pocket watch device and my brain went do they have the fucking pocket watch that the damned made ah uh, yes yeah, so for those of you who don't know there's a very <laughs> special device that yep. to answer the question no only yeah. the damned have that but there's a pocket watch that is the culmination of invention between one Echo and Wick that yep. has the ability to freeze spirits in time temporarily. Basically yep. paralyze them for a short period of time. It was a lot of work between Wick and Echo. Multiple downtimes of multiple study sessions, like yep. multiple areas of work. It took us literally like eight sessions of real downtime to make this thing. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And... This pocket watch is exclusive to the damned. However, when I pulled out that pocket watch, I said there were three gemstones in there. Yep. And each of them was lit up for how many of the generals had been killed in the firebugs. Oh, I didn't catch yeah. that. Yeah, so that was the thing. There was three stones in there. When she pulled it out in their fight with Rick and Silas, and there were two gemstones lit up, and the third one lit up, that was when... The uh, the burned demon, Jacoby Morrison, died. died. And as soon as that third one lit up, she's like, all out of time. Such a shame. I'll catch you later, love. And then just disappeared because she was there on behalf of Archie just to make sure things got cleaned up. She was Archie's person on the inside to make yep. sure that everything with the firebugs continued in a way they wanted to. And when the firebugs, mm -hmm. it was time to clean them up that it made sure that it got done efficiently. And yep. so as soon as that was finished and the three firebug leaders were done, she's like, well, I'm done here. I'll catch you around. And then uh, she was nothing but a distraction. Yep. And it worked perfectly. Because mm -hmm. uh, it, it kept them busy until every, everything was finished. Yeah. If um, anyone had confronted Talia in the beginning, she yeah. would have kept them occupied for the entire session. I could see that. Yeah. She was um, not going to be a fight they could win. 
that does not surprise me, and I can't wait. So, skipping it a little bit, is she the bull now? Or does she keep the bear moniker? Uh, you're going to make me go pull my notes up real quick to make sure that I know. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure she has a bull mask. Um, yeah, hold on. Let me... Just, I gotta get my notes, and then I can hey. have a, uh, I can have a definitive answer for you, because did I give her the bull mask or the bear mask? I might be wrong. Uh, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry to everyone in the previous interviews. No, you're correct. She's the bull. Yeah. She's, she's the bull mask. There is no bear mask. I didn't think there was a bear mask, but yeah, no. Yeah. She's the bull. She, she is the bull. Um, and, like, you could call her the bull, but... In the in the in the kindled, mm. the masks are a representation of the person underneath it. That doesn't yeah. mean that they're referred to by the name of their mask. Then, now the players okay. might refer to them by the name on the mask because that's all they know, other yeah. than Archie, Marasi, and Talia, who they know yeah. are the fox, the phoenix, and the bull, respectively. Yeah. Um, Everyone else might just get called by the serpent, the cat, the jester, the goat, the rabbit, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. Because um, yeah. they don't know who's behind the mask. But for the people who are in the organization who do know who's behind the mask, they probably have other names for each other, whether it's a nickname yeah. or just their fucking name. Yeah, that's fair. Um, that I am so interested in. Like, you... I see this more in how we you and i have played blades in the dark and then getting to see you run it i love your use of masks throughout oh blades. yeah i love masks yeah um it, it's just so good now before i get to the boat and the blue coat showing up let's talk about the boat burning outside oh the the boat the that was supposed bug, to be the, the firebug yeah, escape boat yeah. yeah yeah archie blew that up Okay, Archie blew that up. Yeah. Archie blew that up. Yeah, that was Archie. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to be actually specific about it, it, it wasn't Archie himself. It, it was the rabbit, but uh, yeah. it, it was Archie's organization. They blew it up. Um, yeah, I had to make sure they didn't have a way out. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, well, to be fair, they did wait till a good number of them were on board, and then they blew it up. Well, yeah, that's what you do as a person in Dosfall. You wait until the right opportunity prevent presents itself. This is how Wick put a hole in Night Market. Like, even though that was a complete accident and we don't worry about it. Um, we don't worry about that. Well, yeah, it wasn't just Wick. It was all of us. No, it was, all, it was, no, it was specifically us. <laughs> you specifically and I. us, the damned. You and I and the, the uh, literal warehouse full of Leviathan's blood. Yeah, well, um, it happens. Um, yeah, I, that is, uh, as I was talking with our players, that's when they started figuring out, wait, wait, something's going on. Like Talia leaving the boat, the boat burning. They're like, someone's fucking with us. Yeah. And then we get back to the boat. You give them the perfect amount of a breather. And then the blue coats show up. This is one of two or three times in this campaign that you've kind of break broke the mold on yeah. uh the Blades in the Dark formula. How did it feel to drop that on them? 
I have been planning that specific scene since like yeah. episode four. So yep. dropping that specific scene on them. It was kind of just a relief in some ways, like <laughs> taking something that had been sitting on my chest for two months and just yeah. finally like taking it off and being like and and implementing it and being like, did I hit this right? Did I did I do this the correct way I wanted to do it? Did I cover the usual escape routes? Did I put them in a situation to put pressure on them the way I wanted to do? Whereas like I harpooned the boat, so it is stuck mm -hmm. in the harbor. I've even if they manage to get the harpoons off, I've got boats on either end that are blocking their way down the gangplank. I've got the horde of blue coats. So what they have to do is they have to figure out what they're going to do in this situation, how they're going to get out. And I they did something I didn't expect. Uh, they, yeah. they they decided to blow up their boat, uh, take as much with them as they could, and yep. go through a ghost door made by Silas, which worked so narratively more beautiful than anything I could have ever pictured. Mm. What I was expecting was that they would choose either to split up, to try to split the forces and get them one way or another, and, like, mm -hmm. some of them would get away and some of them would get caught. Mm -hmm. As opposed, and that, like, specifically, especially the ones that had a lot of stress that had been eaten up, mm -hmm. I thought were going to end up getting caught. Um, but they chose such a perfect narrative way, and they really chose that in that same spirit that they built through the whole season of, we all get out or we none of us get out kind of a thing. Yep. Uh, and it worked beautifully and it tied in so narratively perfect to what I wanted to do because what was going to happen was we were my original plan was we we're going to get to a point of whoever had been arrested would be arrested and would be pinned on the ground in some way. Mm -hmm. and whoever was getting away would be fleeing down an alley one way or another. And then there'd be this moment of like we cut to that that monochrome gray that I described where mm -hmm. everything's frozen in moment. And then it was going to be like Archie as this omnipresent being above on a rooftop, above all of them in some uh, kind of giving his whole spiel, his whole speech mm -hmm. and everything uh, from this various points of view with these snapshots in time of like people running down an alley, someone pinned, like very that like end of Dishonored where they do the very snapshot scenes depending on yeah. your levels of chaos kind of a thing of like what ended up where. But the way it worked out so beautifully where it was just the one snapshot or rather more like two snapshots of one snapshot of the boat in the process of exploding with yep. the blue coats like shielding themselves and our gang making it away on the root uh, nearby rooftop like all coming out of the ghost door like trying to skulk off into the darkness of Doskval and having that moment of free frozen time coming still like just hanging in the ghost field and then getting to deliver that speech and end it there it worked narratively perfectly i mm. i think either way would have worked but the fact that it worked out this way and that everyone got away i'm thrilled and it, yeah. it gives a lot of narrative flexibility now because one of my questions for the players going into session zero before season two a little bit of a hint is going to be what has your character been up to for the last few mm -hmm. months kind of a thing yep. and if your character had gotten arrested the answer was in jail but it would have been more about what were you doing in jail but no one got arrested so we have a bit more narrative freedom and flexibility there so yeah i was in jail oh i stabbed someone with my collarbone um all right we don't have to talk about wick <laughs> <laughs> uh but speaking of the phenomenal villain monologue uh, that archie got to give uh how did it feel to get to give that speech and watch their reactions in real time. 
powerful. <laughs> it felt so powerful to be in this moment of I'm going to deliver this entire narrative monologue. And in this moment, I am going to disassemble everything you've built. Yep. Yep. Everything you've done. I'm going to take every victory that you had, and I'm going to show how that as much of a victory as it was for you, it put forward the main plan of the antagonist this whole time, just mm -hmm. to reveal of how much you were being manipulated from the beginning, is yep. the thing. And to get to do that, and to watch their faces as they realized how much I took away from them. And then to pull in and be like, and, and be of this Archie, knowing who Silas was the entire time, keeping yep. him distracted when he needed to, having him on the side like that, and just controlling him in that way. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. And to watch their faces, to see Parker so angry with me for that entire speech was brilliant, especially when I brought up Helene and the Silver Stag and just the offense that Art, mm. uh, that uh, Parker slash Asher took to that statement yep. and the betrayal in Silas for having been manipulated for this long. And there's just John as Mort, like embodying the like, just another blow of just how empty inside he was of like, just kind of like sitting there taking it, unable to believe and unable to do anything about it. And then we've got like, Tristero, who's just yep. sitting there like, oh my god, I'm the master manipulator who got manipulated. Yep. Um, the whole time, I'm the spider who got outspidered. Mm -hmm. So... Yes. It's, it's one of those things of where, and I guess and if you're talking hints about who Archie really was, there's a reason Archie had foresight as the ability for the one job that they took Archie on. And it is because at his core, Archie is, and always has been, a spider. Yep. Oh, Stero and Archie are so very alike. Uh, More than they could ever know. Yep. It, that was something Cole talked about a lot, was, like, seeing those parallels now and being like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> um, so you've given the dramatic speech. We cut to uh, our outros and these final moments. And then I think you put probably one of the deepest nails in the coffin with Silas going back to their apartment in Six Towers to find a signed book written by Archie and a vial of kindling. Yep. And <laughs> this is one of those things with kindling also uh, mm -hmm. with Formula 451 Omega one of the things that makes it very special, one of the things that makes the kindled very special. Pyro, Formula 451, Alpha or Beta, the mm -hmm. one that, uh, the more unstable version or the more stable version that allowed for the control of fire through the ghost field and its energy. Mm -hmm. In order to use it, you have to keep using it. Uh, and like, you have the chance of overdosing. You take Formula 451 Omega once and it, Oh. unlocks something 
in you. Oh. Interesting. Hmm. Rue might be changing their answer about something. We'll we'll see what they say. Um well with that, that's the finale. And then we can talk about the future, the bright and wonderful future of Dustfall, because that's definitely where we're heading right now. The little bit of hope that always exists on the horizon. Exactly. So uh I I'll get I'll get the fun one out of the way. How many more betrayals must we suffer? And more I think than the you answer could possibly is, imagine. Yep. All right. Took the words right out of my mouth. Um kind of in the same vein. How the truth many... of the matter is no one's gonna betray you more than yourself. Ouch. Ouch. I'm just gonna I'm gonna have to have the awkward silence there for a sec. Um and so what are you most excited about for season two? The thing I'm most excited about for season two is we're gonna come back to a city at war. We're fast forwarding several months and this landscape of Doskval is going to look very different. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a, a city where the entire city is in some form of an outbreak of gang war one way or another, uh, where the city is quite literally eating itself alive. Interesting. Because that was something that came up was what Dustfall was going to look like or if they would even care about um, the Kindle. And because we talked about during our decompress, like the damned didn't know and didn't really care. Yeah. I'm sure that's going to change in a couple months. That is. It is. There's so. a lot of things that are going to change. We're going to be fast-forwarding several several months further, and it's mm-hmm. going to be a very different city. Uh, not in terms of physical landscape, but in terms yeah. of the layout of the political structure and things. This mm-hmm. is a city that is burning itself to the ground figuratively. You are going to be in the midst of, there is not going to be a single gang left in Duskfall that is not engaged in a war. Except for maybe our protagonists. Yeah. Depending on what they've been up to. Um, And, of course, we will focus on uh, kindling and the Kindle and all of that. Uh, I did forget this question when talking about the finale, but uh, how long have you known who all the masked figures are? I still don't know who all the mass figured are, is the thing. Uh, yeah. That's that's something that it still has a little bit of Wiggle needs room. to be tinkered with a little bit for season two. That's why some yeah. of the masks aren't revealed. For instance, for how long have I known the mask figures that I do know, which is to mm-hmm. say, uh, well, there's ones I'm not mentioning, but including Archie, Talia, and Marasi. Uh, yeah. I have known... Archie and Marasi since episode two. Yeah. Uh, Talia was a character that I created specifically for her role in the Firebugs around episode five. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like, became more structurally figured out as time went on. Um, that I then got to, I was like, all right, so she's one of, you know, the big eight kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, there's a couple of other, there's two other people who are, that I know behind the masks. Yes. 
um, that I've had figured out for one of them I figured out in episode seven, like after episode yeah. seven, and one of them I figured out literally during the finale. Like I, I like was in the middle of giving the finale and I figured out yeah. one of the people was behind the mask while I was doing it. And I was like, oh shit, I just thought of something and just kind yep. of, but I had to keep going. And yep. so it just continued on through there. Um, I love that. I always so. love those revelations in the middle of a game. Um, I know uh, you and I have run into those several times. But there are a few people who I still don't know who's behind the mask. That kind of goes into part of my planning going forward into season two and things like that. Yeah. It's like, and this is, I've, I've talked about this a little bit before in terms of planning, especially going into season one, is session to session, most of my notes for each individual session, not counting my overarching like story I was trying to tell notes, were about the size of an index card at most, except yep. for the season finale. I had about five pages for season finale. Um, yep. But most of my notes for most of the sessions were about five or about an index card's worth of size. And then I had my general notes and things like that mm. to refer to. Um, so there are people I don't know who's behind the mask yet that I'm still working out. It's part of my planning for season two. Yeah. So looking at season two, uh, this, season one was a lot of uh, Tristero and his dealings with his backstory. Um, and we got a bit of Crow in there and then more towards the end. Mm -hmm. uh, who are you excited to explore more during season two? Spectre and Crow. It's going to be a lot of Spectre and Crow. Uh, Mort's story going forward. Um, should we continue to have the pleasure of all of our players? Uh, but mm -hmm having the pleasure of John's continued presence. Um, Moore's story is going to be a story of him finding himself again in the wake of what happened. It's going to be mm -hmm. a story more about the present and the future and less to do with his backstory and how that. And, and John and I are going to have some character conversations and things like mm -hmm. that for the future, I'm sure I have planned. Um, Tristero's story is kind of an underarching theme to a lot of it because Cole decided yeah. to make a character who was very intimately tied to Pyro and the overarching mm -hmm. story. However, a lot of Tristero's story kind of cracked in season one. We mm -hmm. kind of hit like 90% of it. This last 10% of Tristero that we're going to hit in season two is going to be the fallout of that, uh, yeah. specifically obviously dealing with Marasi, but also Archie and the parallels between him and Marasi and the parallels between him and Archie. Um, yeah. And then Spectre and Crow. Mm -hmm. The reason we're going to get a lot more of the Spectre and Crow show here in season two is the idea, is that we really did not touch a lot of Spectre, aka Asher Claw's backstory in season one. Uh, season two there's a lot more that's going to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's things that Parker is not expecting to be there. And some things that Parker probably is expecting to be there, but not in the way they expect it to be. Yeah. Um, is the thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to how that ties in together and, and how the string ties up there. Mm -hmm. Crow, Crow's backstory is one of 
having to question themselves and their own motivations because they left Skurlock and the flock because they didn't agree with all the killing. And then yeah. they've now done more killing in with the MVPs and mm -hmm. because of Archie and all that. And they're kind of coming to terms with that. So a lot of Crow's story in was that is going to be one of Crow finding their place as to where mm -hmm. is the place that they are supposed to be, whether that dead ends and them back with the flock or with the crew of our crew of scoundrels or wherever that takes them. But a lot of Crow's backstory in terms of their relationship with Skurlock and the flock mm -hmm. has, I want to say, the opportunity to come up, but yeah. may or may not. It's going to depend on certain choices the crew makes. Okay. Yeah. I I mean, you literally threatened Parker with, I'm coming after you next. And I did. I, I can't wait. Ah. I, I, I threatened Parker with your backstories intimately tied into the second part of this. And it's true. For the things that I have planned so far, Parker's backstory is already, uh, or Asher backstory is already all wound up in there yep and let's see i'm trying to think if there was any other major things i think that hits most of season two for me because i know a lot of this we're going to discuss in session zero um such as you know they don't have a patron now they're not really hawkers no. anymore either nope so well they don't have they gonna... access to any of their equipment to make the drug they sell the person yep. who actually knew how to make the drug they sell, or any of that other fun stuff. Yep. So they either have to find a new product to push if they want to keep being hawkers, but given their motivations and the things they want to do, I don't think they're going to continue being hawkers. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, you're right, they don't have a patron anymore, so they either have to find a new patron or strike out on their own. And there are options and opportunities and that kind of thing. They also yep. don't have a headquarters anymore. That'll be part of our session zero talking as well. They blew yeah. up their own boat, which like, they were going to lose that boat one way or the other. The way they chose to let that boat go out though was mm, perfect. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, would you like to hear some of the opinions we had on patrons or? I uh, would absolutely because they're probably all patrons I've thought about and would be laying out for them anyway. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so let's see. Uh, Helene has come up a couple times. Um, I'm sure. She is an with, option I had thought of. With the caveat of like, well, that's going to be emotional for Asher. So we'll see how Asher feels about that. Uh, there's Skurlock, um, yep. which I know you and I have talked about already. And the the interesting thing there was really like Crow's complicated feelings becoming complicated squared um yep. and dealing with that then uh let's see the damned was the other like kind of obvious option um, the damned is an obvious option and it's one let's just say that they chose the damned it would make my life easy but it wouldn't necessarily make their life easy yeah I, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and I also, I think part of that goes into what direction they take the crew. Because, mm -hmm. like, the damned are assassins. The damned are assassins. So they're going to get killing jobs more often if that's the case. There's a certain level of, there's the damned mm -hmm. who are assassins, and they would should go 
with the damned if they really are going to fully lean into Hellbent of taking down Archie and the Kindled and all that. Helene is like an intermediary option where they still get to kind of define themselves, but they have this like sugar mama patron kind of a thing yeah. going on. And like, yeah, Gerlock is if they want to really lean into like the weird and the occult. Um, whereas the hive would be a good one to lean yeah. into if they wanted to stay hawkers. Yeah. Uh, and that's really the only good reason to stay with the hive. Um, because mm -hmm. that Cause is the what the hawkers, the hive are yeah. best at. Um, beyond that, you know, there's a couple other options, but those are really the big ones. Yeah, the Hive came up during Cole's interview uh, because we we were talking about, like, changing playbooks, and that mm -hmm. was the exact comment of, if we want to stay Hawkers, then yeah, the Hive. But also, do we still even want a patron? Because... Right, and if they go independent, obviously, they have a bit more freedom, but... Yeah, now it's more money to tear up and all that tear up um, they might not get all the nice little pretty things that their patron sometimes brings them yeah there's that um, like the nice fireproof armor that archie gave them or mm -hmm. all of the baked goods that they brought in or you know the payoff that they got mm -hmm. at episode four things like that yeah so i'll be interested to see what they pick um some cast members have even talked about changing their character playbook interesting mm -hmm. so it's parker about thinking about changing to a whisper not a whisper you got the right person wrong playbook got her slide oh yeah i remember them talking about that now yeah yeah oh here's the thing they're alert right there's plenty yeah, they're of alert. good things from slide that can be pulled from oh yeah that into the lurk playbook because Blades in the Dark is flexible like that. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's realistically what's gonna happen is mm -hmm. start taking the the veteran ability uh and getting some of those slide fun toys. Um I mean, much like we didn't get to this point in our game, but I remember with Leech, I almost went and got a couple no, you were considering some I spider was taking... abilities some spider abilities was i did yeah. take a spider ability i took rook's gambit uh or was oh, that, that's, no, that's right a slide. that's a slide uh, ability yeah um, you took rook's gambit i, I almost gambit. um i built a hound i almost took stuff from the hound playbook yeah echo is echo is is mostly whisper but with a good helping of spider and a little bit of slide at this point um yeah they are they're the leader of the damned we know that so like they're they, the leader of the damned yeah yeah, that's that's and, what they do. I could see Mort starting to take things from Hound if he mm -hmm. wanted to dip into there. I would see Tresero start dipping into Slide as well. Uh, yeah. I could see uh, Crow start dipping into Leech because of you know background mm -hmm. with working with Archie and all that. And there's there's a lot of things that people across the board I could see them start getting interested in. Yeah. I, I'm interested in that. It's, well, also Leech for Crow, because Crow still got training with Echo and the Dimmer Sisters, which Correct. lead that direction. Correct. Um, demon hunting training. Yeah. Speak, speaking of demons in Season 2, um, he still have the hunt. <laughs> still have the hunt, but he's... 
He's not on their side anymore. His his whole tit for tat thing with Mort's done. They both yep. got what they wanted. But any interactions with the hunt from here forward probably aren't going to be the most amicable. Uh, and I think everyone understands that now, um, because yeah, there's a there's a lot of discussion of yes, the overall plot is dealing with the Kindles, but then there's the subplot of well, we've just released like a terrible demon on Dustfall because now it's ultra powered up and it's our fault. <laughs> so I'm yep. excited to see how they approach that problem. You want to know why the spirit wardens aren't going to be more involved in our next season and the terms of the war of that's going on in Dustfall between all the gangs? It's because they have a demon that they're trying to deal with. Yeah. And losing. Yeah, yeah that's the bigger thing is the losing part. Um, and unfortunately for them, mm-hmm. the damned are a little busy. The damned, oh, oh, the damned are busy. Oh, I didn't know this. <laughs> now I'm on that crew. Interesting. Um, so let's see. I think that's all I got uh, for season two. Uh, before we get into closing remarks, was there anything you wanted to talk about in general? Ask me as the producer, whatever you're feeling. I want to thank you, first off, for allowing me to... No, that's during, that's during closing remarks. No, do it later. Okay, fine. I won't <laughs> thank you then. Um, yeah. In terms of questions I have, are you ready for season two? Fuck yes. I mean, no, we, we, I need the break. We need the break. Breaks are good. But fuck yes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And you have... If you, Brandon, had been running this game, what would you have done differently? Um... Oh, that's a really good question. I... I probably wouldn't have had Archie be the big bad, and that's not saying I would change it on purpose, just that that's not where my mind would have went with it. Um... I personally would have picked somebody to build up throughout the season. Like, I might have taken the Foghounds a different direction or built up the hunt more or, like, a collection of demons more and built something akin to the Kindled, but in a in a more straight-up violent effort like right you you've seen me in our our games i'm more of the like front and center is your problem go tackle it kind of person um so to build something in the background in dust ball is really interesting but what i would do is probably push them more towards that weird early on but then flip it back on them towards the finale gotcha um, where it's like the demons they've been interacting with and um if somehow my home game is watching this you didn't hear a thing i just said because all of these interactions with demons and the dimmer sisters and whatever else they may be doing might come back to bite them if they stray too far into the ghost field without being prepared yeah Um, absolutely so yeah Um, i we both have that like we love the weird shit of dishonored and everything else so for me it would be bringing those elements and saying you can do this and like to an extent you can get away without the whole power requires sacrifice but if you dip your toe too far you're getting pulled under 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then is there anything you would have done differently as a producer on this show? Oh, um, for me, so like part of it's like logistical things. I, I probably would have split the episodes into two parts for YouTube. Uh, and that's sure. something I'm going to do for season two, just to like make it easier to consume. Because one one thing I've really seen in the tabletop space is like four hour episodes are hard to watch. And a lot of people don't want to start it, pause in the middle, have to come back to it. Yeah. So, so you'd having, like put a break at when we take our break kind of a yeah. thing. Yeah. And, may, and basically split it into two parts, upload them both at the same time. So we keep the same cadence yeah. that we have. But it would be you could take them up in like two hour chunks rather than a four hour block. Yeah. Um, and that's something we'll try out with season two. Um, something I didn't have time for that I would have loved to do is animated background, which we're going to have in season two. I've already started drafting it and y'all yeah. seen previews. Your draft for that also, one thing now that we've kind of tested and things like that is I might want the dice rolls on screen now this yep, season. I've I'm already got a spot for it. Okay. So um, we're going to, we're going to adjust the cameras a little bit and um we're also one thing that I've kind of seen across our shows that on Huntsman's Hydra that I want to implement. It's going to be a little harder to do on the spot, but what I want to see is like when we do have a say an Asher Silas moment, I want to be able to like make their cameras bigger and do mm. like a focus shot. So we still get everybody's reactions, but like they're front and center. Um, Things like some of those things that you notice in like game shows or like the reality TV shows where it really it's really good about having that focused shot. Um, that's something I really want to bring in uh, if we're able to like have the time to up that production. Yeah, rate. and that's that's a, a you thing, but I definitely see why we're wanting to have that. Yeah, um, especially since a lot of the players have talked about wanting uh, moments with characters that they haven't had a full interaction with like um silas and tristero was a pairing that got brought up because especially after the finale because they're both heavily betrayed by archie like oh, more yeah. than kind of the most out of the crew um so like having something where you could easily pull up those cameras and be like that those are the two we want to focus on which shift to that um would be something that if there's time for great Otherwise, I think as far as like how we handle safety tools and bringing everybody in for session zero and making sure everyone was on the same page and then uh, doing decompress, which I've wholeheartedly stolen your decompress method because I love it. Um, That's not a thing we show on the show, but we do have decompresses after yeah. every session. Just so yeah, you all know. We, we've implemented safety tools. We, of course, have all the normal tools that roll 20 provides with like the x card and everything else that we can pull mm -hmm. and then we do decompresses where it's really about separating yourself from the character and then highlighting your favorite moment for yourself and then for anybody in the group yeah. um which if you haven't watched the interview with rue um there's a whole section where we talk about it and i think it really sums up like how it feels to run through that process um yeah. I haven't it hasn't been published yet at the time of this yeah. interview no but you'll get to see it and it's great um rue does a great job walking through it and then i just make commentary um 
but let's see anything else i would want to change from the production side i'm getting rid of the portrait frames because i keep having to move people <laughs> we're all too chaotic <laughs> even when i i was adjusting my own camera while playing wick because wick does this <laughs> yeah it's fair so just squares squares, squares. Are better okay um, okay but yeah, I think that's the majority. A lot of it was just like logistical stuff. Otherwise, it ran smoothly. It's probably one of the most smooth shows I've ever produced. Um, so all in all, 10 out of 10. Would do it again. Perfect. And would do it again. <laughs> yeah, we got we got a season two. Which yeah. this is also, I guess your spoiler. This is a two-season show. Season two is it also is. the end of Fire in the Dark for mm-hmm. anyone out there. It's it's gonna be the first season is the first half of the story and the second season is the second half and it yep. doesn't mean that's gonna be the last time you see me and Doskval running a game in this world doesn't mean that yep. there's not gonna be repercussions for this game down the line doesn't mean that this is the last Blades in the Dark but this is this story it's two yep. seasons which again kind of going that back to that digestible thing we talk about how critical role is a hundred some odd episodes good luck catching up yeah. fire in the dark is going to be like 20 max yeah kinda. and in that kind of in that vein it, it, it is i i take a lot of influence again from actually again uh late bardugo's grishaverse where mm-hmm. the grishaverse there are multiple series set in the same universe so like you can read yeah. the first trilogy the first trilogy is a fantasy romance with yep mostly fantasy with a healthy dose of romance the set the duology in the middle which is my favorite part of the whole verse of verse uh the duology in the middle is a fantasy heist series yeah and then the second duology is a uh i don't even know how to describe the second duology is is basically a classic fantasy adventure yeah kind of a thing so like yeah i think that's the closest you're going to get is just fantasy adventure yeah. So like, and it's kind of that section of like, these are independently digestible. If you consume all of them, then you might get a little bit more out of it because mm-hmm. you know, there's these recurring characters that sometimes pop in from the others that you're like, oh, I know that person. And this, yeah, 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 and that's yeah. why they're doing the thing they're doing. That's kind yep. of cool. But they are independently supposed to stand alone, which is why it's going to be two seasons for Fire in the Dark. And then my next project after that, I don't know if I'll be coming back to Duskull immediately. I might have mm. a different game or thing that I want to run first for mm. Huntsman's Hydra or that. I don't know yet. I'm tinkering mm. with things. But I do intend to come back, and we will probably see the return of various individuals, including the Damned, the Murmur Venture Project, and whatever form they take, and things like mm. that going into whatever the next show in Duskball is. Yep. And it will be so good. Um... Let's see. Anything else on your end? So then, now we hit closing remarks, which if you want to, you can say whatever you want about the channel, the cast, not your producer, anybody you want to talk about. <laughs> so first thing I want to say is I want to extend a a, a, uh, a, a sincere and just wonderful thank you to um, Duskfall GQ's power couple that is the Huntsman's Hydra of uh, Brandon and Mariah for 
creating the channel for what it is, uh, for putting as much work and effort into it as they do, for all the work that goes on in the background that no one gets to see, uh, and for everything that they've done to make it what it is and the space that it is from being a fun and comfortable and safe space to uh, explore in and a uh, truly a, a, a player-focused first kind of, and a people-first kind of channel that I really appreciate. And I am incredibly thankful to have had the opportunity to have this show on Huntsman's Hydra and to have this kind of whole experience. It has, it has been fantastic. So thank you for that. Um, you and Mariah and the entirety of the Huntsman's Hydra. It's, thank you. It, the Huntsman's Hydra does a lot of good work and there's a lot of great shows coming to Huntsman, Huntsman's Hydra. I am super looking forward to the Vassin game that's coming that's called Shifting Worlds. Mm -hmm. I don't get to be in it, unfortunately, just because of time and uh, things like that. <laughs> I didn't want to be in it. I didn't apply for it. But, such but at is least the you're in our off-stream game. <laughs> Such is the way things are. I'm fine with it. It's fine. Yeah. I'm not upset at all. But no, please, the Huntsman Hydra is such a wonderful space to be in, and I highly recommend it. So have fun with it. Enjoy. There's going to be something here for you, even if the show that I've been helping to put on here as the GM isn't to your tastes. If you're not, if Fire in the Dark has not been your fantasy, you will find something here that is, whether it is high fantasy D&D, or horror, or sci-fi is coming. Get ready mm -hmm. for it. It's all going to be here. So check it out. Stick around. You're going to enjoy it. And so I'm, I'm just very thankful to you, Brandon, and to Mariah, to the channel for everything. As for the cast, my heart is very full and has been from the beginning. Because as I said to you, and have told the mm -hmm. cast before, I did not think anyone was going to apply for this show. Mm -hmm. I did not think I was going to get a single application. Or if I did, I would get an application here or there from the couple of people that we knew, that we were friends with, who we played with in, before in the past. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to look at a spreadsheet of 30 names who had all applied to be in this show people i'd never heard of people i'd never met uh, people i did know and i was excited to see i oh it it, it absolutely I, I i almost cried i was mm -hmm. so relieved and then to have had the option and then to have just the power crew that yep. we had with mm, it's just parker an absolute joy um my 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 pick one mm -hmm. saw their name down and i was like no questions asked absolutely i will find a way to make it work and then i got to see the absolutely incredible john downey a good friend of mine the only cishet white man that we trust <laughs> uh just to see John kind of in that group and being like, it was just, it was gratifying. And they, the whole crew brought so much and it was, I'm so thankful to all of them, Cole, 
brought Tristero and just dove in so hard into the lore with his character and just added that little bit of a chaos element with Tristero. And then Rue came in, and I did not know Rue from the beginning, but Rue came in, wanted to play a Whisper, which was my favorite part of Plays in the Dark, and immediately dived into the creepy aspect, gave me the engine to explore the creepier aspects of this, and then just did it so well. I was just... Mm -hmm. All of them brought such incredible chaos and empathy to the show that I, I had an idea and they told a story. That's what this yeah. show was. I had an idea and they told the story. I got to sit here. I got to throw my NPCs, do my weird little voices here or there, throw various jobs at them and be like, you're doing this now, you're doing this now. And they took it and they turned it into the character-driven story that I love. And they took this ragtag team of misbegottens and they became this found family situation that is one of my favorite tropes and just mm -hmm. kind of became this all or nothing with each other. And Archie was a part of that too. And to see how it worked out there in the very end is just and to watch the impact that I was able to have on these players to watch their emotional reactions and be like, I did it. I did it. I had, I, I told a story and it made people feel things. And I watched them feel them. And I, you know, I got to have that moment of excitement and it would not have been possible but for the absolutely amazing cast that we had to work with. These, these mm -hmm. phenomenal people, actors, empaths, and, and, and just storytellers, all of them in their own right. They, they are incredible people. And if you've had the opportunity and have watched all of their interviews as well, I am sure you've heard them talk a little bit about themselves and where you can find them. I, I highly recommend going and finding and watching all of them and all of the things they do. They are wonderful. Um, yeah, that's kind of all I got. Is... Yeah. So that all being said, thank you all so much for joining us for Fire in the Dark season one. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in season two. In the meantime, please go check out Jamie, myself, and our wonderful cast all over the internet. Uh, and see you next time, scoundrels. See you next time, scoundrels.